0: Welcome to Success Story, the most useful podcast in the world. I'm your host, Scott D. Clary. The Success Story podcast is part of the HubSpot Podcast Network, as well as the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Now, the HubSpot Podcast Network has incredible shows like the MarTech Podcast hosted by Benjamin Shapiro. The MarTech Podcast is all about maximum value in 30 minutes or less. The MarTech Podcast shares stories from world-class marketers who use technology To generate growth and achieve business and career success all in your lunch break. If you like any of these topics, you're going to love the MarTech podcast. Some of the topics are zeroing in on the ideal product price point, identifying loyalty plays for smart marketers, finding the line between sales and marketing and SaaS, extending the lifetime value of your customer. If these are topics that are interesting to you, go check out the MarTech podcast hosted by Ben Shapiro. Wherever you get your podcasts. Today, my guest is Jorge Contreras. Jorge is an American legal scholar and attorney who is recognized as a leading global authority on intellectual property law, technical standardization, and the law and policy of human genomics. Contreras currently holds the rank of presidential scholar and professor of law at the University of Utah with an adjunct appointment in the Department of Human Genetics at the University of Utah School of Medicine. He also serves as a senior policy fellow at the American University Washington College of Law and has held many esteemed appointments and fellowships as well as uh, positions in a variety of universities across the United States. I brought him on the show because of a very interesting topic that he just wrote about based on a case that he was involved in and something that he has taken a particular interest in which I don't think a lot of people understand and pay attention to, rather. It was the case of the intellectual property concerning human genomes. So can companies put patents on human DNA? And the implications for this could be huge. So he breaks down a lot of points that he has researched, understood, and presents to the public as almost an alert to what's going on behind the doors that the public may not be aware of in terms of human genomes, uh, IP, patents, private companies, public companies, and what this could mean for the future of us and our health and well-being. So let's jump right into it. This is Jorge Contreras. He is an esteemed American legal scholar and attorney.
1: Well, thanks so much for having me on the show. So I'm George Contreras and I'm a law professor, Um, but I wasn't always a law professor. I started my career as a lawyer and an intellectual property lawyer. So I've got a degree in electrical engineering. Um, I decided during college when I was getting my degree that I didn't want to be an electrical engineer for a number of reasons, but I still like the stuff. I like the technology. Uh, So I went to law school with the goal of becoming a patent patent lawyer, Uh, and that's a lawyer who deals with technology. Uh, Different technologies come in the door every day, and you get to help inventors Uh, to figure out how to protect them against competition. Uh, And so I I did that type of work for a number of years after I graduated from law school. I worked at a big firm in Boston, and Washington, D.C. I spent a couple of years in London, saw all sorts of different uh, industries from electronics to software to semiconductors and biotech and pharmaceuticals. Um, And then after a number of years, I decided to... uh, turn in my uh you know my 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 bar card and become a law professor uh which I did and uh, that that's where I am now but I'm still interested in these topics I still write about and think about intellectual property law and the bigger picture of how it affects society
0: and as you okay so you you know you stopped practicing you're starting to teach um walk me through uh why you thought so this this conversation is going to be about the book, the Genome Defense, um, and we're going to speak about the implications. This is like a true. This is a true story. So, walk me through why you wanted to write about this. Out of all the different cases that you've taken on, why was this the one thing that stood out and obviously dedicated like a huge portion of your life to it?
1: Yeah, it. Um, I've wrote about this case because this is an amazing case in so many different ways. Uh, it, and we'll talk more about the details, I'm sure, in a little bit but it's about a set of patents that were well known in the field you know i had been in and around the biotech world venture capital world and pharmaceuticals for a long time and most everybody in the field knew about the patenting of human genes and you know it was viewed by the industry as pretty normal as like nothing big happening here and and then in 2009 when the aclu brought a lawsuit challenging uh, some of these patents, that was a shock. Um, I and everybody in the industry, whether patent lawyers or executives and scientists, were all really surprised, like, what's going on here? Um, And this case unfolded over the years. And the more I looked into it, the more I thought, wow, there's really something here. Like, This isn't just a fluke, these guys could win. Um, And it, uh, you know, again, uh, so this started, I was a lawyer uh, practicing when the case started. I became a law professor sort of during that time. And, um, you know, uh, after a few years of watching this happen, I realized this, there are just so many interesting moving pieces here that normal people are just not even aware um, that these pieces of our government work this way. That the law is being affected in this way, and and somebody should tell the story, and so I appointed myself as that person.
0: So so walk me through um, walk me through what this actually means. So when you when you say that our our genomes are 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 patented, what does that what does that actually mean? What are people actually patenting? What's the what is the thing that they are protecting?
1: Right. So that's. That's a really good question and kind of a head scratcher for most people. So so I think people on your show probably know what patents are in general, right? They give the owner the exclusive right to exploit whatever the invention is for a period of 20 years in the United States. And there are corresponding patents all around the world. Um, Patents are issued on inventions, right? And so the big question in a lot of these cases is, well, what's an invention? And so for... You know, 150 years, we've had case law that says a product of nature, something that you just go out into the forest and you find a new kind of a berry or a mushroom. You know, you're the first one who discovered it, maybe the first one who brought it back to, quote unquote, civilization. Um, That's fine. You should be praised and maybe publish a scientific article about it. But you can't get a patent because you didn't invent it. You just found it. Um, Now, if you make a medication out of the berry or the mushroom um, that treats whatever skin rashes, then yes, you can patent that, right? You found a new use for this thing um, that no one had known about before, it's patentable. But where do you draw the line between what's a product of nature that's not patentable and what's a human application of nature that is patentable? Difficult line to draw. You would think that's what yeah. No, I was gonna
0: say this is what this is this is what this is what they're acting so this is the issue. So they're patenting um like the raw genome, they're patent is it correct to say patenting DNA to a to an extent? Is that is that fair? And then and then all derivatives of that, all derivative works of any sort of medical or advancement or discovery, um, that's what they feel like they can have control over. And then there's like obviously like very tangible, like uh, monetary gains uh, at one point when they do discover something, or the I guess there's a new medicine or a new a new therapy or something like that, then that that particular entity is the only entity that can license that and and sell it to to the market, correct?
1: That's that's exactly right, and not only that, they can whoever owns that patent can then control all research uh, relating to the the genes, um, and so. You know the, the the judge who heard this case in New York, the district court judge, called this a lawyer's trick. How you, how these patents came about, and and when you think about it, it is it's very clever, right? Because human genes were patented as what's called compositions of matter, right? A composition of matter that's you know a new metallic alloy or a new polymer right? You, you're you the first one. You invent like polyester or styrene or something. Well, then, you know, anything that's going to be made out of polyester, at least for that 20-year patent period, you you control it. Nobody can make something out of polyester without your permission um, because you invented the material. Considering a, a new human gene or a human gene that was just discovered as a new composition of matter, and we'll we can talk about how you could make that leap uh, intellectually, but if you control it as a composition of matter, that means you control everything that's done with the gene, whether testing people uh, to see if they have certain mutations in the gene that might lead to disease, developing a diagnostic kit, developing a drug um, based on the gene. Even if you, you just discovered the gene, you're not a drug development company, you have no idea how to make a drug Um, that might target the gene, you still have the exclusive rights to everything relating to the gene. So those composition of matter patents are hugely, hugely valuable and broad.
0: I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, HubSpot. Now, the new year might have you thinking ahead to what you want out of your career. So when you think about your success story, what do you actually picture? Is it retiring early with a beautiful view of the skyline? Is it leaving a legacy with your name on it? Or maybe it's helping influence and change some of the world's most pressing issues. Whatever it is, writing your success story starts by working smart. Because when you work smart, your success story writes itself. A HubSpot CRM platform helps your marketing campaigns work harder and smarter with intuitive visual workflows and bot builders. You can create scalable automated campaigns across email, social media, web, and chat. So your customers hear your messages loud and clear. Are you tired of your content, not adapting to mobile, making it difficult for your customers to absorb your message? A HubSpot CRM platform optimizes your content for multiple devices so that you can reach your customers wherever they are which is just smart. Learn more about how you can transform your customer experience with a HubSpot CRM at hubspot.com. So how did they make that leap? How <laughs> did they make that because even 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 you know your first example the if you patent polyester, then any company that makes any item with polyester has to go through that uh, even that is in my opinion that seems like that's so reaching, that's so broad like to to patent a material to that extent. Now I'm not a lawyer, but it still seems like it could be something that, how do you patent something that is not, I guess if you created that material yourself, but if you discovered something that's natural, how do you say that that should ever belong to you?
1: Yeah, no, totally. Well, I mean, the materials, you know, we, People do invent new materials, new carbon graphite fibers, and you know these ceramic protections, like the space shuttle and whatnot mm. and yeah, they get the full protection anything you, you make a coffee pot out of that space shuttle ceramic you're paying NASA something yeah, but right, your genes are not like a ceramic material or, or polyester right they're the scientists didn't invent your gene. Um it was in your body so how do how do you consider it a composition of matter? so you have to go back and think about like how genes exist in our body so we've got like, twenty thousand genes um all you know wrapped up in the nuclei of our cells they're they're spread out along a t- big DNA chain twenty we have twenty three pairs of chromosomes um and uh, those each of those chromosomes. Has thousands of genes on it, right? The genes are sort of like spaced along the chromosomes in an unpredictable kind of way. Um, back in the 80s, like we didn't know where the particular genes were or even what the gene back in the 80s, we thought there were 100,000 genes. Um, and we didn't know where they were or what their DNA sequences were, right? The A, T, G, C, you know, that 3.2 billion A's, T's, G's, and C's make up our. Genome, and Mm -hmm. discovering that was pretty hard. Um, It started in the late '80s when the University of Michigan and other research labs like figured out where the exact gene that related to cystic fibrosis was located and what its exact sequence was. And to do that, they have to extract it from the chromosome. So that gene CFTR sitting along a chromosome with a thousand or two thousand other genes, they have to break it out of the chromosome, uh, isolate it and and purify it, like make millions of copies of it so that our instruments can read it, right? The DNA is just far. You can't look at it with a microscope, right? You need to multiply it by millions of times so that we can um, detect it. So they did that. That isolated and purified gene broken away from the chromosome, like that doesn't exist in the human body, right? It exists along the chromosome, but it's bonded at its two ends to like the rest of the chromosome material. It's got all these other molecules attached to it. When it's isolated outside of the body, it was considered to be a new thing, a new composition of matter. And the analogy you draw is, well, okay, so you've got a tree with a branch. The tree branch, it's a product of nature. You can't patent a tree branch. But you chop off the branch and then you carve it into a new baseball bat right, the new type of baseball bat. Well, yeah, the baseball bat, you, everything came from some natural element, right? There are only whatever, a hundred and some odd elements in the universe. Um, Everything is made out of them. So just because, you know, the baseball bat's made out of wood, you couldn't patent the wood when it was in the tree, but when you broke it out and made something new, yeah, you can patent it. And so the patent office agreed that, okay, that this gene, when it's taken out of the body, and purified now it's like the baseball bat as opposed to the branch, and you can patent hmm.
0: and that's so that was that so somebody somebody who first made these discoveries do you know who the first individual that tried to patent a human gene? do you know who that was That would oh, the, have been a while back then
1: the very first one I mean again, it only started in the late eighties um okay and and the c f t r gene from University of Michigan is the first one of any significance. Okay. And and Francis Collins, whose name you might know, he is now the director of the National Institutes of Health and has been for the last decade plus. Um, he was a scientist at University of Michigan and his team with a bunch of other collaborators found that first gene. Um, and there were a lot more to follow.
0: Okay, so then, okay, so that, so now we, (laughs) it's very, very interesting how Mm -hmm. this is sort of, how this is sort of manifested over, over, over time and how this is now, okay, you have a gene, there has been a successful patent placed on this gene. Now there's precedent set. So um, at what point, why has, why did it take so long for this to be contested? was nobody interested or, or was it contested before and it never actually got any, uh, got any traction?
1: Yeah, that, that's a fascinating like, sociological question, right? Why was this? So, so the, the, the genes in, that I cover in this book, they're the BRCA1 and 2 genes, right? These are genes that are closely associated with breast cancer and ovarian cancer. And if, if a woman has, a particular mutation in one of these genes like her risk of getting these cancers in her lifetime is increased like by eight to ten times right so you go from whatever 10 15 chance of getting one of these diseases to like 80 90 percent um it's it's huge it's almost a certainty so super important information to know these are the genes that were patented by the university of utah which happens to be where I work now, (laughs) did not when I started this project, Um, University of Utah uh, and a company that spun out of the university called Myriad Genetics. Um, They made the discovery, they they sequenced these genes in 1994 and 1995. Their patents, it, it takes a few years to go through the patent office. Patents issued in 97, started to issue in 97, 98, and so forth. And at that point, once the patents issued, they started to shut down all the labs around the country that were performing tests for these BRCA gene mutations. Mostly universities, right? University clinics at Pennsylvania, at Yale, at Georgetown, NYU, um, you name it. Some, some fertility clinics were doing testing. Everybody else in the country gets shut down. So by 2000, they're the only game in town. And there's a lot of, you know, there's criticism in the academic community, among, you know, cancer uh, advocacy groups, but it's not, you probably never heard of it, right? There's not widespread. It's um, not
0: widespread, no. And and that's, is that what it takes to move? Like, it's not a small little university lab. It it has to be like a, a massive social problem or injustice that people want to actually get behind.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so there there was a challenge to patents on on genes related to this very uh serious but rare disease called Canavan's disease. Um a few years earlier. And this was a patent held by uh, Miami Children's Hospital. Um and they were they were also pretty harsh in how they licensed like they didn't want any other labs to be doing testing for this gene that, you know, this is prenatal testing, right? If a, mo- a mother gets screened, um, or parents get screened to see if they're going to pass along this pretty serious disease to uh, to their kids. Um, Miami Children's Hospital shut down. Their lab- other labs are doing this testing for free. Um, that was not an option once they got the patent, right? You're going to have to pay for it. Um, and, and so there was a very strong patient group in this area. And in fact, the patient group they were the ones who collected all the DNA from their children with this disease to give to the scientist who then went off and patented the gene uh, when he discovered it. Um, and he was very apologetic, but said, well, you know, my university, they insist on this. And that was that. And that case, it was it was brought by volunteers by by a law professor who was really forward thinking uh, out out in Chicago. But, you know, they they lost the the litigation Litigation is expensive in this country, and Mm -hmm. and just a law school clinic um, and some volunteers are not going to do well against a giant hospital system um, that has a patent that you know worth millions and millions of dollars. So they lost. Um, And again, nobody heard about you. You probably didn't hear about that case, right? I mean, we teach it in bioethics classes, but but it's not. It didn't make national headlines. Um, And so it wasn't until 2005 then that. The ACLU um, got involved, and it was like, purely by chance. Like, ACLU has been around for 100 years, uh, never brought a patent case, and, and and never even had a scientist on their staff until they started to get a lot of money in donations after the 9-11 attacks. Um, and, you know, the ACLU was really, like, prominent in dealing with civil rights, civil liberty issues after 9-11. Um, they got a lot of donations and they doubled the size of their staff at their New York headquarters. And one of the people they hired was a science advisor because there are all of these issues starting to come up, you know, DNA fingerprinting, Mm -hmm. um, you know, warehousing of people's DNA, criminal investigations, um, you know, tracing people, privacy around your, your health information. They needed a science advisor. And so Tanya Simoncelli, this young woman is hired out of, uh, Graduate program in Berkeley, and um, comes to work for them. And she knows about th- these cases and the gene patenting stuff. And none of the other ACLU lawyers know. But one of the things this book goes through is how she gradually convinces them that yeah, this is actually happening. Like they don't even believe her at first. <laughs> you know, it, just, it seems so unlikely. Like they had your reaction, like that. How could that be possible? Um, it doesn't
0: seem right. It doesn't. Doesn't seem. I, I know. I know. There's probably a lot of. Uh, there's probably a lot of. Um, uh more more uh technical legal legal arguments but it just doesn't seem like an ethically sound uh process.
1: It it it, it struck a lot of people as as just being wrong. Yeah. And and this is what Chris Hansen the uh, very senior litigator at the ACLU thought too when he heard the story and finally believed uh that Simoncelli like knew what she was talking about. Um which she did. And and they then they had to spend like 4 years like making this case moving it through the ACLU they had to convince the you know the leadership of the ACLU that this case was was worth bringing that that this wasn't a case that was going to destroy the biotechnology industry right they they were concerned i mean they care about health um, and you know didn't want to do something that, that was going to be extremely damaging um in the end but but they did they did come around to the conclusion that this was just a practice that had gotten out of hand it was it was created by like experts who who were looking at this in a very narrow way, without any perspective on on what the broader implications were of this, you know, construction of mm-hmm. of a, a gene that was isolated as being a new composition of matter like polyester.
0: When when the ACLU took on this case. Um... Walk me through the walk me through even the 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 trial um and the argument. Was it a was it a complex case or was this like a, a slam dunk home run? Um it seemed like when it was brought before anybody, it was an easy it was an easy response or a, a, an obvious response that this isn't something that we should continue doing. Uh I, I guess it went to the Supreme Court, so what it, it wasn't that, you know, black and white, cut and dry. It was something that actually was appealed multiple times.
1: This this was a total long shot, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. This, um, which is why I and like everybody else in the community like couldn't believe that this case was being brought. So they they filed the case in two thousand nine, right? It, it it took them four years to figure out if they could even bring this case, and and again, remember the patents had issued in the late nineties. Mm-hmm. So we've got like more than a decade of, of history with these patents being around. Nobody's challenged them. There's been plenty of litigation around these patents, right? This company saying, oh, my patent is the patent that controls this. And the other one saying, no, no, it's my patent that really controls it. Plenty of companies were fighting about these patents, but no one had ever argued that we just shouldn't have these patents at all because nobody or no company benefits from that, right? It's like no patent lawyer ever took the position uh, except one <laughs> no patent ever took the position that we shouldn't have these patents because no every company wanted their patents to be the ones that came out on top um but like losing all of the patents that that would hurt everybody so mm-hmm. and and the entire patent bar basically was on the side of some company who had gotten these patents um right because that's what you do as a patent lawyer is you you get patents you you don't argue why there shouldn't be patents and and even the patent office it has like 9000 examiners who decide whether or not to issue these patents they they view their job as issuing patents and they do screen out like the really ridiculous stuff and they get plenty of spurious applications but but this was legitimate right this is these are real inventions real discoveries universities that are prestigious are are submitting mm-hmm. the applications so it was all happening complete surprise <laughs> and a complete long shot uh, of a case
0: yeah and and I just want to touch on one more point. While this, while ACLU took on this case, was argued, well, prepped for, it for four years uh, to even make a case, then argued it. What was the the controversy with the Obama administration about this same topic? Was that in tandem when the ACLU was arguing this case?
1: This is one of the most fascinating pieces of this whole story. So we think about litigation. You know, you've got two parties. We've got the ACLU mm-hmm. and all, all the plaintiffs that it assembled. Um, on its side. And you've got the company who has the patents on the other side. But there's another party too. It's the government. Um, So the patent office issued these patents. And they were pretty proud of these patents, right? Um, And so when a party brings a lawsuit that involves the government or some government agency, the government can intervene, right? They can say, you know, we want to appear in court. We want to make arguments generally in support of this um, of this set of patents and the patent office wanted to do that, which which it often does, right? This is pretty normal. Um, but to do that, the patent office doesn't act on its own, right? In the executive branch of government, all the agencies have to run their litigation matters through the Department of Justice, and sitting at the top of that chain, of course, is the Attorney General. But the Solicitor General who is the number three lawyer in the United States. The Solicitor General is the lawyer for the United States government, right? When the United States has a case at the Supreme Court, the Solicitor General argues it. And all of the thousands of cases involving government agencies around the country, like the Solicitor General obviously doesn't argue them all, but somebody either from the Solicitor General's office or they dole that out to somebody else in the Department of Justice, right? The Solicitor General's Office controls all of that. So the Patent Office, in this case, approaches the Solicitor General and says, look, this crazy ACLU people, they're challenging these patents. That we've, the Patent Office have been issuing the patents on genes for 20 years. Well-established precedent. The entire industry agrees. The biotech industry is built on this. We've got to step in and defend these patents. And the Solicitor General, and again, I'm oops sorry about that. I'm I'm oversimplifying a long process here. The Solicitor General says, well, you know, let's think about that. And they try to get a consensus among other agencies whether this is the right position. And believe it or not, the answer turns out to be, well, maybe not so much, um, because other agencies are opposed to the gene patents. And the agency that is most opposed to them and most vocally opposed is the National Institutes of Health being run by Francis Collins right? Um, who himself has his name on gene patents. The difference is when the University of Michigan discovered the cystic fibrosis uh, gene and, and patented it, they let anybody who wanted to operate under that patent, right? For a fairly nominal fee. Um, so there are hundreds of labs who can test for CFTR. Um, and and no one ever considered that patent to be a problem. The BRCA genes, as I said, that one company, Myriad, they shut down the entire rest of the industry and they charged a very high price for their tests that many people couldn't afford. Medicaid didn't cover it. Um, this led to a lot of the social problems in this case. So NIH and a bunch of other agencies, the Office of Science and Technology at, at the White House, um, you know, the National Economic Council, Uh, led by Larry Summers, Um, a lot of really uh, prominent people in the administration got behind the NIH's position and opposed these patents. And ultimately, the Solicitor General took their view over the Patent Office, right? I mean, and this is crazy, um, at least from the view of the Patent Office, because the Department of Justice is supposed to be their lawyer, supposed to be representing Them as a government agency, and instead, it appears in court at the Supreme Court. The Solicitor General of the United States himself argues that these patents should be invalidated, uh, which is completely shocking. um, But but happened was really important.
0: Very. So that obviously that obviously uh, had a massive impact on. I'm assuming some not massive, but some sort of impact on the outcome of the case. Because this is this is abnormal. This is not normal that this would have happened.
1: It is totally not. I mean, usually, even in patent cases, the Solicitor General supports the Patent Office. Um, yeah, so this was totally unusual, and and the Solicitor General won the case, right? I mean, there were three sets of arguments before the Supreme Court: the ACLU, Myriad, and the Solicitor General, and they picked the Solicitor General's you know argument as the winner, basically.
0: to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash Clary. Just go to indeed.com slash Clary right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Clary. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. So what was the, so obviously we know know the outcome. Um, So the outcome was, and what was what was the 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 more specific outcome? So was it just that no companies can ever patent genes any ever again? Or what was the actual outcome? Or was it was uh, I just want to understand that because I want to understand what some of the uh, impacts that outcome has had in the since since I guess when, when was that case decided uh, in the, 2013. So since 2013. What was some of the impacts that it has had on the industry, and then yeah. on on the medical uh, the medical industry um, in general? So, what was that outcome?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, so the Solicitor General, because the Patent Office was very upset that this was going down this way, they they did try to come up with a compromise solution, right? So, the ACLU argued that all of these patents should be invalid. Uh, mm-hmm. Myriad argued they should all be upheld. The Solicitor General's argument was, well, some of each. So the patents that covered the sequence of DNA, the ATGC, whatever, um, as it appears in our bodies, right, that exact sequence, um, those are not valid because that's a product of nature. You you can't Mm -hmm. patent that. But the way DNA works, I'm going to have to have a... Slight science detour here. The way DNA works, So, you know, the ATGC, there are about 80,000 of those letters in the BRCA1 gene. Of those 80,000, only about 6,000 do what's called coding the protein, right? So the BRCA genes, they they create these proteins that are tumor suppressors, right? When there's a, a flaw in the gene uh, then the protein doesn't get coded properly. And and that's why tumors grow. Uh, I mean, there are obviously like lots of other reasons that tumors grow, but, but you're much more likely to get cancer if you do not have these tumor suppressors like working for you every day in your body. Um, and so only 6,000 of those bases code those tumor suppressing proteins. So if in the lab, you sort of Only those 6,000 coding bases, right, and strung them together into a smaller thing, not the 80,000 bases long gene, but a 6,000 bases long, what we call, you know, exons, um, you know, or what the court called a cDNA, a complementary DNA that's made up just of that small coding region of the DNA. Well, then that might be patentable because that doesn't exist in the body. Right In the body, those six thousand coding uh, bases, they're spread out along the eighty thousand uh, long length of the gene. Um, and you know, we've got molecules called RNA that figure out which are the coding ones, and they reproduce you know the the coding elements to create the protein. But those six thousand aren't just like stacked up neatly uh, together in the body. Um, like they would be in the lab. So if you in the lab create one of these cDNA constructs artificially, um, and because it doesn't exist in the body, that would be patentable. Um, and, and some of Myriad's patent claims covered that. Now, Myriad didn't create cDNA constructs. The, those are not used in the diagnostics business um, because I, for, for a number of reasons. Myriad was not helped at all, really. Um, by this decision uh or by the compromise but it might have helped um you know uh, companies in other areas that like manufacture proteins and things um artificial antibodies and and a lot of the biotech community had been concerned about that so they were happy about the compromise
0: so if they if there is a compromise now if somebody else wants to study these is it is there, any, is there any part of that compromise that allows a new scientist or a new uh, institution to come in and build out works on, on something that it has already been patented? Or is it just, you just have to pay a fee to be able to access this? Like, was there any sort of, because, you know, the original gene patenting, there was a nominal fee to get access to this, to create derivative works and to create additional uh, studies on it. So that's that's sort of like in in good faith for you know the betterment of humankind is the best way to put it. But is there any provision that allows people to at some sort of subsidy go in on a patented gene and to study it or is that not allowed?
1: Well well so the ACLU basically won this case. So after 2013, yeah. those patents on the gene on the full genes, those are yeah. no longer valid. Um they're they're effectively gone. Uh, I mean, they may still be lingering out there on the books, but they can't be enforced, right? The Supreme okay. Court okay, case did knock them all down. So anybody can go uh, conduct research on a human gene, and there's no patent uh, that can stop them.
0: And then, okay, so then walk me through, because um, I know that in the book you reference some of the uh, the impacts that this has had on more recent um, diseases, pandemics. You mentioned SARS, uh, H1N1. Um, I'm assuming there has been some, uh, some positive impact in terms of like COVID and the creation of a COVID vaccine. Um, So what, what were the things that uh, we are able to do now that allowed us to uh, deal with SARS H1N1 and and what we're trying to figure out with COVID now, are these, are these directly related to the outcome of this case said differently? If we didn't have this case, would COVID-19 be a much different situation?
1: Yeah, no this is this is a great question uh, because this case I think did have an impact here and is is has an impact that we're feeling right now. So pre-2013 um SARS, H1N1, you know, those viral RNA sequences, right? They like uh, viruses have have a genomic sequence too. And th- the way a virus infects us is it's it gets into our body and it inserts its DNA into us in, in certain ways it makes us sick. Um, there were patents that were filed like immediately when you know those outbreaks happened. As soon as the viral agent is discovered, um, it's sequenced and, and, and patents were obtained very early on in those processes that then made other researchers who were trying to look at the virus and uh, how to combat it have to go get permission. In order to uh, in order to to study it and certainly to make any kind of vaccine or therapeutic with COVID nineteen right the SARS CoV two um, virus that viral sequence was put up in public databases as soon as it was discovered um, within a week. And I don't know if you've you've probably spoken with people or read a number of the new books that are out about how the the vaccines were developed. You know, the people at the different companies, whether it was um, uh, Moderna or uh, BioNTech, um, you know, they were able to get immediate access to those viral RNA sequences. Uh, from these public databases, and again, the virus mutates a lot. There are hundreds of thousands of mutations of the uh, the SARS-CoV-2 um, uh, sequence, and those are all public. No one has gotten patents on those, and and so labs don't have to worry about paying something. They don't have to worry about signing a agreement, you know, in order to uh, to do research. They're able to just go in immediately and start to do that. And and I do think this contributed to the speed. I mean, there are lots of factors and it's an course, incredibly yeah. impressive job uh, that, that these researchers did in getting these vaccines out. But I think this was a contributor and I do think it sped up the process.
0: Um, and then just just update, update us on where the biotech industry stands because uh, the last part of this book focuses on the fact that they're campaigning to reverse this decision. Now, I'm not a lawyer. I don't know how easy it is to reverse a Supreme Court decision. I'm sure not that easy, but this is something that they're actively campaigning for. Uh, And where do they stand right now?
1: Yeah, uh, you're totally right. Well, I mean, since 2013, like the biotech industry was very unhappy with this decision from the day it came out. And so there's been a pretty steady effort to overturn it. Now, a Supreme Court decision is pretty binding. Um, and the courts the courts, all the courts in the country have to obey it, but the way our you know tripartite system of government works is that Congress can pass laws to reverse the effects of Supreme Court decisions as long as they're not doing something unconstitutional right um and so this this doesn't really implicate constitutional rights in that way, and so in the patent area the, the Congress has the authority to amend the patent act and like, in 2019, uh, a bill was introduced uh, that would explicitly that explicitly said the Supreme Court's jurisprudence on product of nature are abrogated, meaning like they're gone, um, and we're back to you can patent anything, uh, whether it's a product of nature or not, as long as you're the first one to discover it, and and that would put us right back to where we were right before this case was brought. And so that, uh, 2019, that legislation didn't advance and the pandemic started and things were sidelined for for a couple of years. But just this summer, um, at the urging of the same senators who proposed that legislation back in 2019, um, the Patent Office issued a public call for comments asking the industry, Please tell us how you've been affected by these cases. And and of course, you know, the stories that you're hearing are, well, you know, we can't get patents and this is really damaging um, our business. And uh, they got 140 responses to that call for comments. They're still sorting through um, what everybody said. Uh, They're publicly available on the PTO's website, if anybody is curious. I've got somebody, uh, one of my research assistants is sorting through them right now, uh, trying to figure out uh, what everybody said. Um, But clearly, you know, this exercise is uh, going on as background for legislation that would potentially uh, limit the scope of these Supreme Court opinions again in, in the next term.
0: Very interesting. And I, and I just want to, I want to get your opinion on this because this, this whole, this whole story and what's, and how this has evolved to me, I'm from a tech background, it seems like very similar to the open sourced versus like private IP for software companies. And the argument's always made like, well, if you open source something, then you're going to have more contributors, but there's always less money, less energy and less effort put behind something if it's free. Right. So. Do you think that do you think that just opening and removing patents will be a benefit to society, to humanity, or do you believe that there has to be financial incentive and it has to be pri- not privatized but patented so that these huge, large organizations that do have significant revenue can invest in the best and the brightest researchers, and they can focus on these genes and and all, they will only focus on them because they're patented?
1: Yeah so so I I'm not against patents right and and I I do think we need patents in the system um and especially in the biopharma area where R&D is extremely expensive um I I think I think they're necessary. they may not be the greatest uh you know mechanism but they're a pretty good mechanism and they they generally work okay um but that doesn't mean that you should be able to patent everything under the sun Right. So, I mean, the way I view it is that basic research tools and basic information about how the world works and how the human body works, that should be available to everyone um, to access and research without having to pay a toll and without having someone be able to coordinate off exclusively. Um, but past that stage, there there's plenty of room to get patents. Right. So with COVID-19, mm-hmm. I have no objection to the companies that obtain patents on all of the various delivery mechanisms and their, uh, you know, the mRNA uh, vaccine technology. That's that's fine. You know, they should go ahead and get those patents, and there are all of these different competing uh, technologies at work fine. Um, you know, and I, there are some issues around access in the developing world, and. International at,
0: the whole other, at the whole other conference. Oh, that's a <laughs> yeah. different
1: podcast. I'm happy to come yeah. back for that one. But in general, I think the, issuing those patents is, is fine. It's just at the basic research tool level, everybody should have access to it. And that will, that will lead to the most innovation, right? Ring fencing a human gene and all of its uses, like you would with polyester or a new like super strong steel product. That that limits the number of companies who can use it. What happened with the BRCA gene? So Marriott's a diagnostics company. They weren't making drugs, um, yet they their patent covered the use, you know, making drugs targeted to BRCA one and two. Also, they knew they weren't going to make a drug. Um, they licensed those rights to Eli Lilly, um, one company, mm-hmm. who paid them several million dollars for this and that. Actually, they 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 licensed this. This was a futures deal. Right. They they licensed those rights to Lilly before they even discovered the gene. Um, and it was that Lilly money that actually helped them win the race. Right. Because they had more sequencers and equipment than other academic labs who didn't have that kind of corporate backing. Um, so the money did help. But Lilly had then the exclusive rights before the gene was ever even discovered to exploit it. For any kind of therapeutic they wanted to. They never did. Um, they just didn't find it useful and they had other priorities. Um, so nobody else could look at it either, right? No other Mm -hmm. drug, like maybe Pfizer, maybe Novartis, maybe somebody else would have come up with a tumor targeting agent, um, that could have used BRCA one or two. We'll never know. I mean, well, now it's off patent right uh but and and it turns out that the brca genes just didn't turn out to be good targets for drugs they're very like loose genes that move around all the time and are very difficult to work with but like we didn't know that at the time um so locking up the basic research tools i think is is the problem um i think beyond the basic research tools there's plenty of space for patenting and for every company you know to get its rights but we'll have the most innovation and the most discoveries that benefit our health if the field is open at sort of that basic research level
0: um i want to i want to pivot and just ask a couple of rapid fire questions to pull out from your experience that i like to do with every show but before i do that um of course i think like i think we know like your stance on where you would like the industry to go but your background is in law you've been in in this field for a while where do you think, even though there's like the best possible scenario, where do you think this will end up in the next five years? Because now it's being put in front of Congress again. Do you think we're going to revert to where we were before based on your past experience of maybe similar cases or similar, uh, similar campaigning from large industries that may have, you look at it, like tobacco or or energy or other 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 you know like huge industries that have lots of money to uh to solicit government or do you feel like that this decision will carry uh going forward
1: Yeah so there's a lot of criticism of of the patent system right now and and these bills would would cover a lot of different issues I think some patent reform legislation will probably come into effect in the next 5 years um, but I think, I mean, my, my hope and my prediction is that this case and this particular issue won't get changed. And that is because um, when the ACLU picked up this case, that got public interest started, right? And so organizations like Breast Cancer Action, who hadn't really been looking at genetics issues uh, before this or or patent issues, now is on the alert, as is the ACLU. You know, they've continued um to monitor these issues, and so they submitted comments to Congress and the the Patent Office um, in response to that PTO call for comments, and they've been very active in sort of marshaling um, patient groups and uh, medical groups, um, you know, in in this way, and so I, I think that 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 you need a public advocate. Uh, because you're right. I mean, before this, it this was just the land of experts, like industry lobbyists, patent lawyers, um, you know, and company representatives. They were the only ones who were even paying attention. So, of course, uh, this is what's going to shape the rules. It There aren't that many public advocates and public watchdogs out there to cover all of these complex scientific issues. but But this one is now being watched, and I think by very uh, vocal and articulate and smart organizations that, you know, again, I, I, I see what they do and I, I, I think, I think they will be effective. So there may be some patent reform, but I'm hopeful. I've got my fingers crossed that this one, uh, this, this case won't fall.
0: Very good. No, very, very interesting. Thank you for, uh, thank you for giving us a rundown on that. I, the second, the second I saw what the book was about, I'm like, we have to chat we have to chat. Like, this is something that I like, I'm probably like most people, like I didn't realize this was a thing until you start to sort of dive into it and you're like like you know excuse my french like holy shit this is like a a a pretty significant issue yeah
1: and whoever heard of it i I, i i agree yeah
0: yeah um so okay so uh i also want to get some information from you so if people want to go get this book if they want to connect with you um where should they go is it social do you have a website what's the best spot
1: yeah so the book they can buy anywhere uh generally it's it's a book book uh, it's, it's also you know there's an ebook format uh, there's an audio book uh, and, and these days yeah i, I listen to uh, half of the books i read are on audio um so you know audible and amazon your local bookseller i do have a website um which I, i'm not i'm not selling the book right uh, but uh, it has links to all of the book uh, the bookstore sites it's called genome right? Just one word. The book is The Genome Defense, and so genomedefense.org. And I mentioned the website um, because it's got a lot of other material on it. So again, depending on how interested you are, if your listeners are law students or just really curious about what a lawsuit like this looks like, I've got all of the documents, or there are probably thousands of documents, I've got all of the important documents from the case are up on the website, um, so if anybody wants to see, like, what did that patent actually look like? I've never seen a patent before. Um, you can go yeah. see what a patent looked like on a gene, all the patents that were challenged, what, or, and the demand letters, like uh, myriad sent cease and desist letters to all these universities and clinics, all of the demand letters I could get my hands on are uh, up there on the website, and the, the, the transcripts, you know, from the yeah. oral arguments, like, if you wanna hear what a really good uh argument at the supreme court sounds like you know read this transcript um so there's a lot of fun and stuff for for the real law geeks out there um and it's all there it's all free and it's organized uh, on the website
0: amazing no that's awesome thank you i appreciate it I'll, i'll i'll link that below um in the show notes too okay um, I like to do a couple rapid fire uh, career questions, just life questions, because you've had a great career, um, obviously uh, having a life, practicing law, writing a book, um, teaching law, that's no small feat. So I like to pull out some insights to people that um, are earlier on in their career or later on and just want to learn from somebody who's done it before. So the biggest challenge that you've had to overcome in your entire career could be personal or professional. Um, what was that and how did you overcome it?
1: So you know, it's, 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 it's hard to say. I, I mean, I, so I, I was always like in, in, in elementary school, middle school, high school, I was always like a pretty creative kid. I, I, I was always really like the most into got like, creative writing assignments and projects. And like, I directed a play that I wrote. Oh, it really creative stuff. Um, but, but, you know, then I, I was good at math and good at science and I went and became an engineer and and one of the reasons that I left engineering was it, it I, I couldn't be creative in the way that I I wanted to be there and then you might think well going to law school is a pretty stupid you know choice um, and I, I liked law school a lot you know if students are thinking about law school it, it actually is like an intellectually like amazing uh, place to be Um but then when i came out and i started to be a lawyer and i i did negotiations and transactions like drafting these agreements around intellectual property i liked it and it was detailed and careful but i i found myself honey, i this just isn't very creative you know in this mm-hmm. way and I, I i i you know got kind of unhappy about that and really wondered what can i do you know am I stuck here um you know doing a job that that will I can do very well and efficiently and effectively but I'm not going to exercise like that much creativity and and that is what after a very long road led me to become a law professor where you can greatest job in the world you can do literally anything you want to um no one's checking you no one's you don't have kind of a boss really um and I decided I'm gonna write this book like to try to explain you know in kind of a journalistic literary creative way how something really complicated works in the real world and and uh it took me a long time to get here but but that like challenge the challenge is figuring out how to do what i really enjoyed um in a series of different jobs that um that weren't exactly the right fit but Mm -hmm. but helped me a lot along the way
0: i love that Um, If you had to choose one person who was very impactful in your life, and there probably has been many, but you have to pick one, who was that person and what did they teach you?
1: So, so I'll go, I mean... Obviously, you know my, my wife. <laughs> I will. Uh, I cannot uh, avoid uh, mentioning mentioning her because she's helped me very much along the way course, and uh, does have molecular biology background and helped me a lot in writing this book. And we both know many of the people in the book. Um, but but uh, for you know, sort of a more professional, thing, you got to go back to high school um, because you know I was this kid. I went to high school, big public high school in outside of Dallas, Texas, um, and and you know, I had I was interested in in writing, but I was also this kind of math science kid. Um but my English teacher in eleventh grade, uh, Janet Arterberry, I, I she's no longer with us, I believe, but this is a long time ago. I was in high school, she she actually, you know, thought that I was a good writer and believed in in me as as a kid who like you know, could, could express himself in, in writing and and put me on the high school's expository competition composition team. It's called it's called ready writing um at that time. And and we competed and like unbelievably, you know, we competed and I, I, I went up through the ranks. I ultimately won the Texas State Championship um in this, you know, competition of ready writing. And and um I i was I was just so grateful to her right because I previously the previous year like the teacher didn't nominate me for this team, and I was kind of bummed about that and this teacher she took a chance you know and uh you know saw something in in what I could do and and i i just i really grabbed it and I ran with it um and and that was again that was a long, long time ago it was my senior year in high school. But um, I is really one of my proudest moments, you know, when I won that competition.
0: Amazing, no, that's good. Um, a, a favorite a favorite source to learn or grow could be a book, podcast that you'd recommend people go check out.
1: Oh, um, boy, I I I take inputs from so many sources, you know. I get so many
0: fair, yeah. And it doesn't have to be like a business and- anything, anything. Like if that you that you've read recently or that in the past that you just thought was a good uh, some good uh something that people like if it didn't have to be business at all or law be anything
1: yeah yeah well so um you know this may be totally inappropriate but but there, there's there's a, a, a i'm gonna start to listen to your podcast um but the planet money <laughs> podcast um yeah, is, that's is- that's good is is one that um, it's got these short like 15 minute things they they actually had a segment on gene patenting um, a year or a year and a half ago before this book came out and i was I was bummed that they didn't know about my book um, and I'm hoping they're gonna do a follow- up but um you know but but they periodically they do segments that cover law and and they cover they have a few really good segments that cover patents crazy things. One of my favorites is, is a segment of theirs called, can you patent a stake? Um, like S-T-E-A-K. And the answer, believe it or not, is yes. <laughs> and so for people who don't know, who aren't experts, um, it's got just a lot of really good economic uh, tidbits and information that, that shows us how the real world works. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, it it's, uh, it's a good one.
0: Very interesting. Um, if you could tell your 20-year-old self one thing, what would it be?
1: I would I would say uh, to my 20-year-old self um you know uh, go get into academia sooner don't wait i don't spend that many years as as a like go with what you really love um as sure. soon as you can uh you know we we all have debts and i had to pay off debts also from college and law school and you've got to work and make some money uh before that but once you're done with that don't don't let the golden handcuffs uh bind you um, longer than they absolutely have to you know follow your passion um, as soon as you're financially able to do it and maybe
0: very able. good advice very good <laughs> advice um, last question what does success mean to you?
1: you know to me it i I think success is having people recognize what you've done and, and making a contribution, you know, making a real contribution of some kind to society. I mean, I, I'm not a scientist, I'm not a doctor, um, but, you know, my contribution, I, I hope, is explaining complicated things to people in, in a way that they can understand so that they they learn something more about our crazy, you know, system of government and laws.